0: Yeah, Lord, we just found. Oh, what an exciting morning. It's been great. That was a great time of worship this morning, wasn't it? And I just feel like God's bringing some really exciting revelations. So yeah, Father, would you do that this morning through my words. And yeah, I just really pray that he'd speak to our hearts and change our lives this morning as we kind of carry on in our series in Mark. Um, We've been, um, we had a little break, as Jess said last week, to have our vision talk, didn't we, from Chris? And um, But we're picking up again uh, with Down to Earth Jesus. But um, just before we do that, I, um, I want to show you a picture. Jess, can we have the first slide? I asked Ollie to draw a picture this week. Okay, here's the real thing. There it is up on the screen. Okay, if you can't see it. And um can anyone guess what it's of? Any guesses? Come on. You. Himself? You. Me? Why why do you think it's me? The eyes. The the oh, uncle. <laughs> the eyes. <ice. laughs> the eyes. You're right, it is me. I'm amazed you guessed. I'm a little bit insulted that you guessed. <laughs> Seriously, guys. Um where would we maybe say it looks like me, or that it doesn't resemble me? What do we think? What, what are the clues to you?
1: I didn't
0: look like a Ah! Ah! <laughs> oh, oh, ever the heartbeat, Jack. What a smoothie! Yeah, it's great. You are a great example to us, Jack. The size of your head. I have a very large head. I have. Is that one arm? I have a dress. I very rarely wear a dress. I think that might be a stripy top. I am commonly in stripy tops. She's got a lovely smile. Oh, Nick, you've got you gents. Beating heart of Freedom Church. I've got, I've got a big smile. Only one ear. Yep, okay. okay, okay. What about their hair? Ponytail I've got a ponytail on top. Yeah, I did that specially to go with the picture today. Um, what about the colour of the hair? Can you see what colors he's used? Gray. gray. Gray and yellow is how he described my hair. Which is an improvement on before I went to the hairdressers when he said, Mommy, you've got, you've got zebra hair. It's black and gray so that's why the yellow came in. Um, But yeah, it's kind of amusing, isn't it? It's very sweet, isn't it? I mean, bless him. He does love his mummy. Jack is right. Ollie does love me, and I don't feel unloved by this. But actually, you know, it still only tells you so much about me, because a four-year-old's picture is inevitably going to fall short a little bit, isn't it? Um, It's missing some proportions. Clearly. Um, seemed seem to have a very short body and strange looking legs and no arms and various other things. It's um, only one scenario as well, actually. I asked Ollie, where am I in this picture? Am I in the garden? Am I you're in your garden shed, Mum. I have not I haven't got a garden shed. And that's your ladder in the background, he said. So he's you know, he's going off into the realms of unreality. Um, clearly he's aware I'm short and need a ladder to climb regularly. But um, but actually it's quite generic really, isn't it, this picture? It's quite generic, it falls short, and um, it doesn't really help you to know very much about me, does it? Or even about my relationship with my lovely, adoring, and very artistic four-year-old. And I just asked this question this morning. Perhaps our picture of Jesus can be a little bit like probably what my effort, to be fair, to have drawn myself, wouldn't have been much better than that. And my effort to draw Jesus might not have been much better than this either. So how would you draw him? Where would you put him if you did a drawing of him? What would, he do? what would he be doing? What would his expression be? Let's have some suggestions. If you were to just draw one picture of Jesus, where would you set him? What would he be doing? Let's have some hands up. Any thoughts? On the cross? On the cross? Where, what other picture of Jesus might we encounter in the, in the Bible? Having a meal. Luke was thinking of that one too. So both of you having a meal with his friends. Okay, I might have showed, I might have depicted him in that way. Giving a sermon. Giving a sermon, teaching many, many people. All with all the children around him. I thought some of these might come out. Jess, pop to our next slide, please. Okay. Here are some of those examples. Now, obviously, some of these are artist's drawings over the years. You can see the improvement um, on on Ollie's standard, but. You know, here we have him teaching on the cross. We have the baby Jesus. We're coming to Christmas soon, aren't we? Sometimes we just depict Jesus, don't we, as that newborn baby, and we kind of sometimes forget all of the rest of what he did. Do you know, even still, these pictures, even with our kind of modern CGI, we can still sometimes fall short in our Understanding of who he is, and in chapter eight, a few weeks back, we looked at chapter eight, how Jesus asked that crucial question of his disciples. He said, "Who do you say I am?" They'd spent two years with him. We've we've done the same. We've followed them through the first few chapters of Mark, haven't we? As they've eaten with him, as he's healed the sick, as um, they've fished, they've uh, they've seen these huge crowds gathered. That he's taught, he's shown compassion to some of the most marginalized, the sick. The disgraced and he's performed these incredible miracles. But we also learned that although Peter has learned enough to recognize and call Jesus the Messiah, he still didn't appreciate what that really meant. And when Jesus then told them, and Matt explained this to us the other week, when he Jesus then explained to them that he was going to suffer and be rejected and killed before rising again three days later. That, journey, and, and that that kind of journey of self-sacrifice and suffering was for him and anyone who wants to be his disciple. We see that they're completely confused and troubled and we, we learn about how Peter tries to put Jesus off that mission, don't we? And today we pick up at um, this moment called the transfiguration where the, um, Jesus takes a few of his disciples up to a mountaintop. At the end of that ministry, sort of moving around a lot, we've seen a lot. He's been building up to this question, who do you say I am? And after this moment today, he is going to head straight to the cross. The next few chapters are going to feel very different, much darker than the ones that we've studied so far. Jesus is very much trying to show his disciples who he is And try and break their current understanding so they get a better revelation of who he is and what he's come to do. And the Transfiguration is a really misunderstood term. We're going to unpack that a little bit, unpack what happens in this moment. It's definitely not just a subject taught at Hogwarts School of Magic and whatever. Um, There is a much deeper understanding. And I feel there's four real ways that Jesus wants to help us to see him clearer today and to change us. So we're going to read from the passage. So it's Mark 9, verses 2 to 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, "Rabbi, it is good that we are here.' And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore things. And how is it, how is it? written of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. It's quite an amazing, but definitely quite confusing passage, isn't it? And I have to say, I've as I've read over it and studied this week, just the amount of richness in here has been really quite fun to dig into. But I'm just gonna just go back to verses one to four. I'm actually gonna read verse one as well. But I'm gonna read to you from the Message version, okay? And just want you to almost like just picture this in your mind, because I think the beauty of the Message version is it sometimes helps us see things in kind of layman, modern terms, doesn't it? So, at the end of the previous um, talk to them about his suffering, he said, "Some of you who are standing here are going to see it happen. You're going to see the kingdom of God arrive in full force." And six days later, three of them did see it. Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain where his appearance changed from the inside out, right before their eyes. His clothes shimmered, glistening white, whiter than any bleach could make them. Jesus is saying, this is who I am. Transfiguration is him changing to show what is inside of him, what his intrinsic value is. It doesn't just mean that a nice little light shone on Jesus. Sometimes we see that, don't we, in the old fashioned art. When we go, if you ever go to art galleries, we see it like there's like a nice light coming down. This is completely different. This is God saying that, or Jesus showing that he himself is God, that inside of him is the same glory, the Shekinah glory that is um, present whenever God is described in the Bible. It's not like, you know, let's, put on some really white clothes like Daz, the whitest of whites. Um, no Daz advert can ever really do this justice. It isn't an external thing. This is described as he's shining that brightness from within him. And all of our metaphors really fall short, don't they? But, but we can see that Mark is trying to give us some language here to understand just how radiant this change was. Transfiguration literally means that. It means a change of form, a transformation, change of form. But we see Jesus doesn't stop looking like a man, and yet he does, because actually, look at that, bit. Look, if you try and look at the sun, the radiant sun, you can't even look at it, can we? We know it would destroy our eyesight to look directly at the sun. Even this morning, Ruth got out of her car, and she couldn't see, me. I came towards her, she couldn't see me, she had to shield her eyes, because the sun was, it's at the moment, it's at that low piercing point, isn't it, where we need sunglasses a lot, you're putting your sun visor down in the car a lot, it's so bright and radiant, and that's what we're seeing here. Jesus is showing them. That when that he is God, that God who came and took the form of a baby, that he hid that nature, didn't he? That veil, the veil of his ma- his the body of a man, it's now revealed. And he's taken these three closest friends with him to show them this. He took them up the mountain. Now, three is an important number. I think we've mentioned it before, but three is the number of reliable witnesses that were needed in, in court in Jewish times to say this really happened. So that's why that's a, an element of why it's important. And he's showing them, they're almost used to him by now, aren't they? I sort of think they've got him fairly figured out to the point where Peter can be like, no, Jesus, excuse me, Uh, I think we've got better. But this, this would just, can you imagine, I can't even begin to think of a rationale where I can really imagine what this would be like to see Jesus like this, to see God his, the, it's not some, like, Clark Kent taking his glasses off, taking his shirt off, and ta-da, I'm Superman. This is just so much more powerful, uh, a much more incredible display, isn't it? And actually, we don't ever see Christ show this side of him again, even after the resurrection. But, but when the disciples do see him, although he can kind of appear in rooms, he still looks like a man. Sometimes they, they don't recognize him, do they? On the road, to, on the road they, um, they think they're walking with a stranger you know, when Mary sees him in the garden, she thinks he's the gardener. He doesn't show himself in this radiance. But here, he does very deliberately. He shows a glimpse of something that one day every Christian is going to see. One day every one of us is going to enjoy a glimpse of that glory he left behind that one day we will enjoy when we get to be with him in heaven. And And to the Jews, this really was an appalling idea, the idea that God would demean himself so much to dwell in a person in a man's form in a created form the jews regularly talk about the shekinah glory of god um, as being something that you just couldn't stand in the presence of you know moses when he came down the mountain from encountering god he had to put a veil over his face that's where this language about the veil often comes from because he didn't even realize that his face was reflecting so much of god's glory that others couldn't look at him that's the kind of impact it has, is that others are changed by it, and that's what's going on here. These disciples can somehow stand in the presence of God. They, they tell us they're terrified, but I mean, it's mind-blowing, isn't it, what they had, this encounter, like, he's not just a teacher, he's not just a good man. He is God. That is the revelation they'd be getting. And they would remember from prophecies, from the Old Testament, the prophecy of Daniel, this language, Son of Man, suddenly doesn't just mean human, human form, doesn't just mean that he's a man, okay? Son of Man prophesied in Daniel was was this, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He he approached the ancient of days, he approached God and was led into his presence and he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him, worshipped him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The disciples are seeing that Jesus is saying, I am that son of man, not just a man. I am the son of man that was prophesied about in Daniel. When they see him on this mountaintop, when they see him reflecting that presence of Jesus, of God, that glory, that light of the world, it changes them and they never forget it. Both Peter and John write of this later in in their different books. John and the Gospel of John, the beginning of the Gospel of John, talks about the true light of the world, doesn't it, coming into the world? And he says, "We've seen his glory, the glory that belongs to the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth." And Peter declares, "We were witnesses of his majesty." And we're going to look again later at how it changes them and how it changes us when we actually really see God, see Jesus as God in that glory. But then, of course, Moses and Elijah appear with him, don't they, to talk with him. And so that brings us to our second point, that he's saying, I am the new covenant. And these two men were giants of Jewish history. You know, we've got Moses representing the law and um, Elijah representing all of the prophets and all the weight of prophecy in the Old Testament. and. And both had, were are foretold as being something to do with that when the Messiah is coming, that they will um, they basically foretell him this expectation of this coming Messiah is part of that. And in a sense, their appearance here is yet another confirmation of Jesus' credentials as that Messiah. And the sight of them together, talking together, I mean they look a bit severe here, don't they? This is uh, this is the superbook, um, a little children's video clip, but I quite liked the way it shows. Jesus is the one who is radiant. I think sometimes we see Moses and Elijah, when they're presented next to him, they look very like him. But actually, I think that this is really helpful to to really see that distinction, this idea of this light shining out of him. And um, they're in glory with him, but they aren't the glory, are they? He is the glory. He is God. But seeing them together... Really screams to the disciples the whole Old Testament was part of this plan that Jesus is the answer to it that he was the promised one okay not just the promised king like the king like a Davidic king like David just for Israel but the promised king for all nations and all tribes that like we 've just heard about in that Daniel prophecy he is the fulfillment of the old covenant and he 's bringing in the new covenant for us and And we hear and we learn. Actually, it doesn't tell us here in Mark, but in Luke's Gospel, it tells us what they talk about, which the disciples get to hear as well. And they talk about Jesus's departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And I'm I'm really touched by that for a couple of different reasons. I think the disciples. They don't really understand what's going on, do they? So I do love the fact that Jesus here gets a chance to talk with some of those in the heavenly realms who've always understood that this was Jesus' plan, A, that this was God's plan. A. He has a little chat with those who did get it, even whilst his friends, the disciples, they don't get it, do they? So I love the fact that he's having that little chat with them about what's coming and how it is still part of that plan. Because his death is going to completely fulfill the requirements of that law that he himself gave to Moses and to us. To point out our sin and he is bringing that covenant of grace isn't he to us that was prophesied of that God's always had this plan and we get a little glimpse as well I think here of the kingdom of heaven of what heaven's going to look like because I just love the fact that they just knew this was Moses and Elijah you know I mean I could have stuck a couple of randoms up there and it, we just but they knew this was like like we know that this is Matt and this is Chris, like we, they just knew and I love that because it really encourages me that, that in heaven we're, we're gonna know, aren't we? We're told we will, we will be fully known and we will know all things and, and I think that's really comforting because I know there are many of us here who do look forward to a day when we will see those who we haven't seen here on earth and we will be reunited or be, re- be united for the first time with those who We long to see in heaven and that knowledge that we will know them and they will know us and all things will be revealed. It's an intimacy that we just can't comprehend but I know we we long for and I think there's great comfort in that. For now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of heaven. But can you believe that Peter butts in to this com- to this conversation, he actually interrupts. Rabbi, it's great that we're here. <laughs> yes, it is. That's why he brought you. But it's, you know, Peter thinks he knows why. That's the baffling thing. Oh, my goodness. He thinks he knows why without waiting to be told. And he's still missing that big picture. And I can sympathise so much with Peter. He is one of my favourite flawed characters because he's that kind of like mouth before brain kind of guy, and um, and and he gets and when he gets nervous, he talks a lot. That's me. Um, He's kind of doing God. Let me tell you what we need to do next. Let me tell you what you should do for us. This, This is the plan. He thinks he's got it. And I know my prayers can be so much like that. And I wonder whether you can relate a little bit to that in your dealings with God, in your chatting with God. Since we're a little bit over-familiar with him, aren't we? Anyway, poor poor terrified Peter suggests that the disciples build three tents. I mean, what is it with Christians and tents? We really love a good time in a tent, don't we? (laughs) Hmm. Now, it might be, to be kind to Peter, it might be that this was a reference to the Festival of Booths, which was also linked with the coming of the Messiah. But maybe, just maybe he actually just wanted to prolong this encounter, this amazing encounter with God. And I really don't think that we can blame Peter for that, because I know how hard it can be to kind of re-enter the real world when we've been in that glorious place of intimacy with God, when we've been really enjoying and encountering him. But he gets it so wrong because of course three-tenths, three-tenths reduces Jesus to the same level as Elijah and Moses. And of course that is absolutely the opposite of what he's just been shown. And he's just still missing it, isn't it? There is only one Messiah. But of course, bless him, he does say kind of by way of an apology, he didn't know what to say, he was terrified. But dwelling on a mountaintop is also not the reason that Jesus came, is it? It's not his purpose. And and really and truly, when you see that he is kind of in this heavenly place here, he could have just stepped back, couldn't he? If that was the culmination, right, great, I've shown you now that this is who I am, then he could have just gone home and sat down. But he didn't, did he? That wasn't why he'd come. And this isn't the message. And Peter, again, is forgetting that rebuke from um, from uh, chapter 8 when Jesus says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Peter, again, really wants to kind of skip over that suffering part, doesn't he? Once again. And God has clearly heard enough, because coming to our third point now, we hear God saying, look, he sends this massive cloud to overshadow them. They will disappear within this incredible cloud. And a voice comes out, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And of course, this immediately echoes that last affirmation of God, that last audible voice we had right at the start of Jesus's ministry, at the start of the gospel. That time it was, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. But look how the language has changed this time. This is clearly, it's gone from a message for, the, a message for Jesus to a message for the disciples and for us, right down through the ages. God's love and his affirmation of his son Jesus here is reiterated. And I think there's so much comfort in this because when we think about where what his mission is now going to accomplish, the journey he's now going on, I think it's really poignant that God chose to remind them that he loves, that he, the father, loves the son just as much through this next part of his journey. He didn't only love him while he ministered to the sick and the destitute whilst he sorted out people's problems whilst he taught, the, whilst he preached to them. He loved him in the second phase of his ministry as well, as he suffered, as he was rejected and beaten and betrayed and tempted to give up. He loved him when he was so broken from his beatings that he couldn't even carry his own cross, which we were reminded of the other night. Jesus got to that place. And he loved him even as he turned his face away at Calvary. And I think that when we suffer or see others going through hard times, we very quickly ask the question or hear the question, where is God? What is he playing at? How does this show love? And I have no intention of being glib about our suffering today. I'm not really going into look look in depth at the topic of suffering. It's enormous. But I think it's clear that our suffering does not equate to a lack of love from our Father God. Our Father God. God who went through suffering and death so that we can call him father. And there's also a correction here, isn't there? Listen to him. And I know as a parent, this is a phrase I use regularly with my children. Will you just listen? And what do I mean by that? I don't mean, are you not deaf? Please don't be deaf. I mean, will you obey? Will you obey? I mean, it was Ollie's, my little four-year-old, it was his parents' evening target this week. He needs to practice listening. We know we all know what that means. He can hear perfectly well. In fact, he's stretching his ears, you might have noticed. He's got a little habit, he's stretching them at the moment, to hearing that. He can hear perfectly well. So can my eight-year-old, though it's very hard to believe sometimes. Do we, or are we like Peter, a little bit tempted to only obey and listen to the bits of his teaching, of Jesus' teaching that we find comfortable? That we find don't particularly challenge the way that we're living. And this is a challenge directed at the disciples by God. Start listening to him. It's his plan, not yours. Obey all of his teachings. And when this cloud lifts, um, we then see that when God's finished, it says, and, they, and then they see Jesus only. Gone is the Old Testament covenant. Gone are Elijah and Moses. Here is our new covenant. Here is our new and only way to the kingdom, to relationship with the Father. And I just think that phrase, they see Jesus only. I think that let that linger in your mind. That is what they're left with. They're back with Jesus only, but is he only Jesus anymore? Is he only their mate that they've traveled around with who's done some pretty cool things? Or Jesus only now has a whole different wait, doesn't it? After we've seen these things with them. And in our second kind of paragraph here, we, as they're journeying back down the mountain, Jesus gives them some more challenge. Tell no one what you've seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And this is pretty confusing to the disciples because they've just seen Jesus, their hero, in glory. It's like, Why on earth would we keep this quiet? Why can't we shout about it? Get this man on the X Factor. Israel's got talent. Let's tweet about him. Let's spread the news. I mean, it's amazing, really, isn't it, that things like the Bake Off winner doesn't leak out early. I don't know what they do to try and keep these things secret. But, you know, it's not really a surprise when things people are trying to keep secret get out because people are so excited to share. But And here we've got the disciples being told they've got to keep this quiet, this revelation, this incredible encounter there's only 3 of them up there they can't even tell the other disciples hey like, oh my word what self control is that going to require what why would he want them to wait until he's died what good could come of him dying and disappearing now now we've seen you're you're really powerful why do we need to stay silent and they they actually try and I mean, they're a little bit about Elijah coming. It, they're trying to put a few more obstacles in the play in the way as well. They're like, surely that's not what's going on here. But actually, you know, they throw out this one about this Old Testament belief that Elijah was supposed to come before the Christ. And Jesus points out he has in the form of John the Baptist. Okay, you can dig into that a little bit more. They're the only two men in the Bible who who wore camel's hair, preached repentance, ate the specific food. It was clearly pointing um, pointing that that John the Baptist was this new Elijah but why must they stay silent? And it was because the transfiguration wasn't the message for mankind, was it? We've already seen Jesus' calm storms. We've already seen touches, glimpses of him and his power. But despite what they'd seen, Jesus knew that the culture that the disciples lived in was still affecting their understanding Uh, Guy Paulson puts it like this. He says, people had the wrong ideas about the Christ. They they wanted a political saviour. They wanted someone who would come and put all their troubles right except one, their own sin. They wanted someone who would release them from the Romans, someone who would release them from fear, but not from themselves, from self. What kind of a leader, what kind of liberator, what kind of a hero is it who says he has to suffer and be put to death? It was only part of the revelation. The Messiah promised in Isaiah 53 must give his life for many as a ransom for many. That was the great exchange that hadn't happened yet, had it? The message of the gospel is the tri- it's that triumph over sin. You have to wait till I've risen from death, that triumph over sin and death that he accomplished. The full picture of the glory that Jesus is going to have hasn't even happened yet because he hasn't yet conquered death. So they've had a glimpse of the future, of the future of his transformed figure, but there's still more. There's still more to come. And we know that after Christ paid for our sin, after he rose again, at the end of his ministry, he gave them the different command, didn't he? He said, "Therefore, now go and make disciples, tell everybody, um, all nations, baptizing them." So to finish, I want to ask you, how do you see Jesus? Do we have a mature view of Him in all of His glory? Or is it a little bit like a four-year-old's picture? Simplistic, comfortable, kind of fits a little bit. We just focus in on the, the bits of Him, Him gathering the children, Jesus teaching, healing doing the loving stuff. But what about him driving out those people from the temple? What about him revealing the extent of our sin? What about him saying, take up your cross and follow me? How is our picture of Jesus? Who I am to Ollie is fairly simply his mummy with zebra hair, his provider of meals and hugs and screen time and stories, etc., etc., approval and correction. But if you ask Jessie, she'd probably add to that list. She might even mention a few other dimensions of me, my work, my friendships, maybe some of my interests. Ask Chris, and after our 17 years together, he'd probably give you an even fuller, well jolly well hope he would, I'm sure he would give you an even fuller picture of who I am, because our various adventures have added a richness to our understanding of one another. And if we ask Jack and Sheila or some of those other couples who have journeyed on for years, Jim and Barb, others, we see that the revelation of one another grows as we spend more time with each other, doesn't it? And honestly, whether we're four or 40 or 104, our revelation of Jesus will always be limited. Unless we keep on seeking Him more, unless we spend time in worship, in prayer. I loved worshiping this morning and hearing people's testimonies, hearing pictures, hearing and singing of all that He's done because what does it do when we see Him? It transforms us. And the truth is that this revelation affected these disciples so that they too were transformed. You know, they still had questions. Peter fled, didn't he? He denied initially. But their knowledge of Jesus drew them back and they waited. They waited to see him come in glory. They waited for the Holy Spirit to come and change them. His grace restored them. And they both gave their lives, actually, in, this, in service of him to extending the kingdom. Peter was a martyr, and John went on to write some of our most precious parts of the gospel, didn't he? The book of Revelation, you know, John, um, the gospel of John, one John, there's so much in there about that, about the impact of that revelation and what it had on him. And like these disciples, when we choose to follow Jesus only, we see his glory and we'll be transfigured too. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom and we all now with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are God's children now and we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And I just feel like it's really important that we finish this morning by worshiping him and um and I know that I felt it this morning in worship, and, and maybe you can relate too. So as you see Jesus, there's so much to him, isn't there? We can't begin to describe him, but a favorite clip of mine is um, there's a, a preacher who many years ago wrote this and recorded this um, description of Jesus for us. And so as you listen to it, um, he's asking, "Who? this is my king. He's saying, this is my king. Do you know him? And that's the question that I want to leave with us today. Do we know him? Do we know Jesus? And if not, ask him to reveal more of himself to you today. Are you following him or a different version, a simplistic view of him? Are you really following the true Jesus, the one who gave his life for us to separate us from our shame? So we're going to play that clip and I just invite you to start your worship now. We're going to worship on the back of it if there's time. I'm not sure how long it's been. There's time. So we're going to have some time in worship and be expectant, because as we come into the presence of Jesus, he does transform us. And if you're thinking, do you know, I want that revelation, but I don't have it yet, ask him. And if you want someone to pray with you, then please do ask this morning for that, um, because the Holy Spirit brings that revelation. I know for me, the day I saw Jesus fully, the day I fully understood that he wasn't just an angry God or somebody who I could just go to with a shopping list, but that he was the one who had absolutely taken my shame away. I have never, ever had to carry that again. I have never looked back. I have known that deep love, even through the stuff. It is well with my soul, I can say. And, and that is what he wants for us today. He is the king of the king.
1: He's available for the tempted and the pride. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors, he delivers the captive, he defends the feeble, he blesses the young, he serves the unfortunate, he regards the age, he rewards the diligent, and he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him, he's a key to knowledge, he's a wellspring of wisdom, he's a doorway of deliverance, he's a pathway of peace the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is massless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And yoke is and his world is right. I wish I could describe him for you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You see, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees When they found out they couldn't stop him, silence couldn't find any fault in him. Terror couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the brave couldn't hold him.